Oh, great to see you all this morning. How good is it to be able to look at God's Word, particularly such an exciting part of the Bible uh, in the book of Exodus. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your power. And thank you that we uh, can see that you are unstoppable, the God of promise and life. And so we pray that our hearts will be encouraged, that we might never doubt you, and that we might walk humbly with you. Amen. God heard... God remembered, God saw, God knew. Uh, today we're kicking off in one of the most vivid and thrilling parts of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Uh, if you know the story already, I hope you're excited to get back into such a, a thrilling ride. But if you're unfamiliar with it, let me say that you're in for a treat over the next few weeks because it not only recounts one of the most epic moments from all of human history, but it's one of the defining points of the Bible as God saves a people for himself, fleeing them from slavery in the most extraordinary way. Uh, so dramatic were these events that uh, some 40 years after the conclusion of this book, the nations of the Middle East and the land of Canaan were still trembling in fear because of what happened, shaking in their boots at how powerful this God must be. Hundreds of years later, the people of Israel were still writing and singing songs about these events and calling on each other to remember God's powerful hand and how he lifted them on eagles' wings through these events. And 1,500 years or so later, the events of Exodus would become the principal illustrations that God himself would use in the New Testament to help us understand the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to an effect, a, an even greater rescue than the one that happens here in this book. Uh, the book of Exodus is an epic story uh, which uh, begins in Egypt and ends at Mount Sinai. It describes events that took place somewhere around 1500 BC, though it's a little bit tricky to date it precisely. And in these events, God reveals himself in ways that he never had done before particularly we'll see that next week and as he reveals himself he confronts us in all his fearsome power and in his overwhelming goodness and the constant refrain through the book is that you would know that I am the Lord that's said to his friends that's said to his enemies and it's what God's saying to us that we would know that he is the Lord, that we'd be forced to look up and see him as he actually is and be blown away by his greatness. But he also wants us to know him that, so that we might be drawn towards him, amazed that he has made himself known, amazed that he wants to have a relationship with us. And so as we get to know that he's the Lord, we're going to see that there is no other. He is incontestable. God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows. And because of that, he's going to raise up a saviour for his people. And he is absolutely unstoppable no matter what happens. And so you're ready to get into it? Well, the first two chapters that Peter read for us really are, are just the prelude to the, the book kind of like the opening shots at the start of a movie setting the scene 
And, and the first few verses of chapter 1 are almost like the words that somehow, sometimes appear at the start of a movie. You know, you get that clip or uh, the, the crawl it's called. And this crawl shows us that Exodus is a sequel. It's a continuation of a saga that began in the book of Genesis. Here's what it might look like if George Lucas had decided to make it. Maybe, maybe you don't recognise those words, uh, but verse 1 is a direct quote from Genesis 46 and verse 8. These are the names of the sons of uh, Israel who came to Egypt. It's, it's a quote, and what follows is a list. Uh, it's a much longer version of the list in Genesis 46, but... Uh, it's the same, it's summarised there in a couple of verses in Exodus. Who are these people and why do they matter? Well, they matter because in the book of Genesis, again, God made a promise to a geriatric nomad and idolater named Abraham, or Abram as he was at the time. Uh, this was the promise in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise that is. A people, a land and through them God's blessings on the nations of the world instead of the curse that the world was under because of human sin blessing coming to a world full of chaos and pain and misery, a world ravaged by sin and death. And the rest of Genesis was about this man Abram, and it turns his name into Abraham, and his family, and by the end of it, his grandson Jacob has ended up in Egypt with his 12 sons and their entire family, 70 people in all. Uh, they come to Egypt because of the worst famine that the world had ever seen, and Joseph, who's one of Jacob's 12 sons, had miraculously, under God's hand, uh, uh, gone from being a slave to being a prisoner to being the prime minister. Uh, you, I don't know what you think of our prime minister, whether you think he's right, isn't that high uh, from that low, but uh, that, that's what happened with Joseph. He'd become the prime minister of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh at the time. And that appointment turned out to be genius because uh, it had not only saved Jacob's family but the whole of Egypt as well and the surrounding nations. They were blessed through this family. And, uh, and in fact, Joseph's leadership had been instrumental in making Egypt into uh, the Middle Eastern superpower that it had become. But what's happened since, well, verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous. So that the land was filled with them. 
It's now about 350 years later and 70 have turned into hundreds of thousands. Uh, when they do a census of this group, there's 600,000 or so men over the age of 20. That's who they counted. And so you add to that women and children and there's more than a million of them. And, and all those words there, uh, fruitful, multiplied, filled, uh, not only is he sort of showing you how numerous and abundant they've been, but if you've got your Bible glasses on, it's all language from Genesis chapter 1, when God told Adam and Eve, the original humans, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, and it's also the language used in Genesis 9 with Noah. Uh, after the flood, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the language of what's happening with the Israelites in Egypt is, is the language of creation and, and of recreation. And the result is that down in Egypt, the family of Abraham are swarming. God has been fulfilling his promises, creating a mighty nation from one man, and through it, bringing blessings to other nations. God may be off camera, but this is who God is, the God of promise and the God of life. But there's a problem. There's a terrible storm that's brewing, and at the center of it is the new Pharaoh. He's the antagonist in the story, the bad guy. Uh, and we soon uh, find out how bad he is. He's, he's the king of death. In verse 8, the camera zooms in on him. Uh, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now, I don't think it can be that he'd never heard the name Joseph. Uh, it could be, though. I mean, who remembers all the names of all the Australian prime ministers? And we've only been going 120. You can do it. No, you can remember that Barton was the first one. Don't know anything about him except he was the first one. Uh, uh, and, and the last couple, <laughs> you probably remember. Menzies was a famous name. Goff, only because you worked for him. But, yeah, you know, uh, but... But so it could be the case that he never heard of Joseph, the Prime Minister, from 350 years ago. But I doubt that's the case because Joseph had been so instrumental in Egypt's rise to world superpower of the time, perhaps the most prominent politician in world history until that point. So I think when it says he didn't know about Joseph, that means he chose to ignore the legacy. Or he didn't find out the facts about him. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, there was a guy called Barton first prime minister of Australia, that's all you know. He didn't know that uh, he, he, uh, blessing had come to Egypt through Joseph. He ignored the fact that he was an Israelite and that uh, they'd only ever been blessed through this family. He just sees there's a bunch of foreigners who are breeding like rabbits and he thinks of them as a threat, trouble that he has to deal with and deal with them he intends to do. And so he begins a three-round boxing match with God. I do not recommend this, as we'll find out. Um, he, might have not, not, he might not have known who he was taking on, but that's exactly the fight he picks. And as he makes three attempts to oppose the king of life, who's been bringing about this abundance and filling the earth with his people. You can imagine Pharaoh sitting there with his courtiers around him, very anxious because of the extraordinary growth of this uh, minority population. Uh, and 
you know, chatting about what they might do when he hatches a cunning plan. He says to his lackeys, let's deal shrewdly with these people. In other words, let's outsmart them. You know how we can fix this. And so with that ding, ding, round one begins as he decides to turn these people into slaves, into forced labor. He wants to grind them down by hard labor, hoping specifically to tire them out so much that they'll have no energy for the bedroom. So he orders them into chain gangs to build some new cities. But he doesn't account for the fact that he's up against God. And so Pharaoh's order ends up having the exact opposite effect of what he intended. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, uh, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now who knew that carrying bricks would be such a great aphrodisiac? <laughs> Maybe it's because of the big guns, I don't know. <laughs> but, but apparently it was. And the harder they had to work, the more the maternity ward in Goshen, the area of Egypt that they lived, was overflowing. And so ding, ding, round two. Pharaoh cranks his evil plan up a gear. He calls in the head Jewish midwives and gives them the instruction that secretly, without the mother knowing, they're to, to kill every baby boy uh, and just let the mum know that it was a stillbirth. Uh, it's horrific, isn't it? Horrific. It's the exact same thought process behind Rwanda or Cambodia or behind Auschwitz. It's the genocide of God's people pure evil from the king of death. But what do the midwives do? Because they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, they will not comply. The most powerful man in the world is nothing compared to the greatness of God in their eyes. And so they ignore the command and make up a pretty bizarre excuse to give to Pharaoh about Israelite women give birth too fast. They They've already got the baby before we get there. <laughs> I think that would put them out of a job. But anyway, that's... And whether they outright lied or whether there's anything to learn about what to do in situations of government-sponsored evil or not, the real point of it is that God is in complete control. And because God's in charge behind the scenes, again, Pharaoh's plans have the opposite effect. And so verse 20, so God was good to the midwives... And the people multiplied and became very numerous. If Pharaoh thought there were too many Israelites before, look at them now. And God even blesses the midwives themselves and gives them families of their own as a kind of, it's a vindication of them putting God first, fearing him above all earthly powers. But it's also a testimony to the goodness of God. Because they didn't know what would happen to them when they disobeyed. Right? They were risking their own lives, but God is watching his people. That's who he is. He's the king of life. And his promises to bring life are unstoppable. So Pharaoh moves on to the final round of the match. Ding, ding, round three. His next move is even more dreadful. You've got to think about it a bit, what the implications are. Verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all of his people to... All of the Egyptians, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, 
but let every daughter leave. You've got to go and murder your neighbor's children. We're not told what the horror was like for those Hebrew mothers. I mean, can you imagine the terror of trying to muffle the cries of your baby boy, living in fear that your neighbor might report you, trying to hide him from patrolling death squads? But instead, we're not told about what it's like in general. Instead, we're, the camera moves in and zooms in even further onto one particular mother and her baby boy. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. So we know that there's trouble. When she saw he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. When she could no longer hide... She did pretty well to get the three months, I reckon... Um, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. It's an act of desperation, isn't it? She does throw her own son into the Nile, but she does it by putting him in this floating basket. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they've translated it as basket because the word is the Hebrew word for ark. She puts him in an ark. Um, when was the last time we heard the word ark in the Bible? Well, Genesis chapter 6, Noah. When God saved Noah and his family and all the animals from the flood which destroyed the world, it was inside the ark. And God is going to save this baby from drowning with an ark. And I wonder, I mean, it's speculation, I wonder if that's why his sister is standing watching at a distance to see what this ark will mean, having heard the stories of long ago. Well, God does have something in mind. By chance, it seems, Pharaoh's daughter comes to that very spot to bathe. Out of the corner of her eye, she spots the floating ark, and when she opens it up, she sees this little boy. Her heart melts. And her, any loyalty to her father's command is forgotten. And his sister, who's been watching, is so clever. Bang, she's on the spot. As soon as she sees the opportunity, she bowls up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Oh, I reckon I could find you a nurse from amongst the Hebrew women who could feed this child. That's what, she's got guts, doesn't she? Uh, and astonishingly, Pharaoh's daughter goes for it. And so, verse 8, Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her, and get this, so the girl went and called, guess who? The boy's mother. <laughs> oh, there's someone who's available to nurse a baby. Then, then, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I'll pay your wages. It's the baby bonus. <laughs> the woman took the boy and nursed him. And, and the irony of it, the baby that Pharaoh wanted to kill is now being raised by his own mother and being funded out of his own treasury at the request of his daughter. Pharaoh thought he could outsmart God. Let's deal shrewdly with this people. But he's got no idea of the wisdom and power of the one he's messing with. He's the God who is unstoppable. This is the God that Exodus is calling us to know as the Lord. This is who he is. This is what he's like. 
our king is the king of life he's the king who brings about his promises to his people to rescue them to be their god and no one can stop him not even pharaoh the most powerful man in the world at the time as much might as he had and glory and splendor that he could just order a million people put into slavery and boom it's done all right go kill your neighbor's children and it's done all right as much might as he had it's nothing compared to god he's it's laughable he's like a little kid trying to punch a giant with the giant's hand on his head swinging wildly Uh it doesn't work no matter what he does it backfires because god rules you cannot outsmart him no matter who you are and we're going to see that repeated over and over again through exodus the unstoppable god is determined to fulfill his promise determined to bring his people to the land of promise uh, to, to live in joy and peace with god as king and that's what god's people have always needed to know the first readers of the book of exodus were standing on the edge of the promised land facing their enemies and god has said go in and get them they've got to know god is unstoppable he will fulfill his promise later readers during the exile hundreds of years later in a different captivity in another land wondering if god could ever or would ever bring them back your god is a god of unstoppable promise even in the face of your own sin which which got you here and and we need to hear it too don't we we've been rescued by jesus we're on our way home we're waiting for the new creation but we can find ourselves wallowing in misery at how things are going god wants us to have confidence he wants us to know that he's the god of unstoppable promise he's been opposed from the very beginning by an even more powerful king of death by satan himself the one who has lied to us the one who wants to put an end to god's creation life but this is the god of unstoppable promise and god is unstoppably bringing new life now as the gospel goes out into the world to countless numbers of people and do his worst to silence god's word and stamp out god's people whether through persecution or through oppression or through lies satan is utterly powerless to win in the long run our god is in control every attempt to stop him is foiled and in fact ends up having the opposite effect that was the case in rome in the early centuries caesar issued the decree that the only person you could call lord was himself but in time constantine the emperor would come to call jesus lord and the whole empire with him china in the last century it's very difficult to get statistics but before now when christianity was legal in the country there's estimated one million christians at the start of the 20th century right persecution comes now there's over estimated over a hundred million christians after a very long period of being illegal and oppression and persecution or think of iran today where there's some of the greatest oppression of the gospel there has been more progress there in the growth of christianity there 
than almost anywhere else on earth. 300,000 Iranian Christians in that country today. So don't be afraid. Stand firm. Our God is the God of unstoppable promise and life. But there's one more thing we're shown in the rest of the chapter 2, which will become apparent, more apparent next week. That this God of unstoppable promise will bring about his promise by raising up a saviour. Which is why we're, we're told about this particular boy. He, he will be the focus of God's plans to save his people through the rest of the book. In verse 10 we find out not only was Moses' life spared, but God puts him in a unique position. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. She's the one that named him Moses. Who knows if he even had a name or what his mum named him, but Pharaoh's daughter called him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. That's what his name means, drawn out of water. In verse 11, it's years later, he's about 40. Uh, he's very powerful as the grandson, adopted grandson of Pharaoh. He lives in the palace as a prince, but he knows his ancestry. She hasn't hidden that from him. Or mum got a word in his ear. And, and he knows his people live in terrible conditions as slaves. And, and instead of ignoring their suffering and hiding away in the palace, Moses comes down out of all the riches and comfort and goes out to his people. But there's an incident when he sees an Egyptian abusing one of his own people, he rises up and strikes him down and buries the body in the sand. He thinks he's gotten away with it. But when he comes out again the next day and he sees two Israelites fighting and tells them to stop, but instead of being greeted as a hero, as we might expect, instead of being welcomed by his own, what happens? He's shunned. Verse 14, Who made you commander and judge over us? replied are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian and you can imagine Moses in that situation the blood rushing from his face as he realizes the words out he's been discovered not only is he rejected by his own people but the words out and Pharaoh his adopted grandfather gets wind and so Moses is forced to flee the country and so for a second time there's a death warrant on him and so by the end of the chapter, the man who is going to be God's chosen rescue is just like the people he's going to save, a foreigner, a refugee in a foreign land. And once again, we're given a clue about where Moses might fit into God's plans as he saves some pretty Midianite girls from some local thugs and ends up marrying one of them. What are we to make of these two little incidents of rescue where Moses steps in to save the man being beaten and then save these girls well we'll only see fully as the story goes on but the clues are there here is god's chosen instrument to save his people god may not be on camera yet but this is the god of unstoppable promise and blessing and the way that he intends to do it his characteristic calling card as it will turn out is through a savior that he chooses to raise up and in so many ways, uh, this saviour Moses is going to be God's model to help us understand the real saviour that he would send one day, who has now come, Jesus, his own son. 
just as Moses was pursued by murderous kings, so Jesus will be. And it's no accident that King Herod ordered the murder of all the baby boys in Jesus' time. Just as it's no accident that uh, Jesus' family fled, sorry, yeah, Jesus' family fled to Egypt and then came out again. Like Moses, he was the prince of a kingdom, but no ordinary kingdom, the kingdom of heaven itself. And like Moses, he could have stayed in that kingdom and enjoyed all of the comforts and the riches. But like Moses, he looked down on all our misery and left the riches of heaven to come into our poor world to rescue us. And when he came, what happened? He was rejected by his own people, not only by harsh words in the case of Moses, but with harsh nails driven into him in the cross. Our God is the God of unstoppable promise and he fulfills his promises through his chosen rescuer. This is our God, unstoppable. And this is the model of how he rescues people from the real slavery that we face, which is slavery to sin and death and judgment. And he does it through his chosen saviour. This is who he is. This is what he is like. And so, don't be like Pharaoh and oppose him. You cannot win against him. Rather, if there's anyone to be like, well, be like the Hebrew midwives. Fear him, love him, trust him. And I wonder if you'd read verse 24 with me. A summary of everything we've seen so far. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. It's not that God had forgotten. It's not that he'd been asleep for 350 years, and he's only just woken up and stretching and realized that something's happened while he was out of it. He doesn't remember in that sense. To say that he remembers is to say that now is the moment that he has chosen to act great power according to his promises. Now is the moment he has chosen to act decisively through this particular man. And so the question we're left with is, what will he do when he chooses to act? What will happen when God steps from behind the camera and steps onto screen? Well, you'll have to come back next week for that one. But what a way for the opening scene's end. And what an encouragement. If you're worried that God's forgotten you, or forgotten his promises, or worried about what he might have for you in the future, God heard, God remember, God saw, God knew. Father, this is extraordinary. It's extraordinary because it shows us who you are. So help us to love you, to fear you, to put you first and to know that you are unstoppable. Thank you that you will always deliver on your promises and that you've given us your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And forgiveness of our sins is ours and we have life in, in your kingdom coming. And so help us to keep trusting and following.